Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called, What are Western Values and Should We Defend Them? In the chair is Claire Fox. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you back to today's Battle of Ideas Festival, if you were here yesterday. Um, I think it really was a successful day yesterday in terms of reopening up public conversations and discussions. And I think that anyone who is here will be more intellectually confused at the end of the day than they were at the start. And we at the Academy of Ideas consider that to be a success. If you're here for the first day, expect to be confused all day, but in a stimulating way. Um, but welcome if it's your first day here. I'm Claire Fox. I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas. And today's opening keynote is close to my heart. Uh, what are Western values and should we defend them? This festival usually takes nine months to organize and we've done it in nine weeks uh, this time. So it's all a bit of a blur, but it means that we were writing the blurbs, the mini essays, the provocations for each session quite close to the event. And when I was writing this one, the Afghanistan withdrawal was happening and it just felt like the backdrop for a discussion on what does the West represent. It seemed to me to, in many ways, symbolize some kind of a retreat from Western values, whichever side you're on. But more broadly, because we weren't anticipating that would happen as we were planning this, there's a lot, I think, this festival has looked at some of the ways that foundational Western values, so-called, from free speech to universality, are under attack and are accused of being a cover for a wide, a wide range of uh, problems, colonialization, white privilege. None of these things to be dismissed, by the way. I'm just saying that that is the kind of uh, circumstances we're in. And you can tell when you look at the socializing of young people, when the government says you've got to socialize people into British values, they can make that declaration, then they can't decide which values. Um, so you know that there's at least something to discuss here today. Right, I don't want this I'm going to be like one of those, you know, let's do the culture wars all over again. It's an attempt at digging a bit deeper. Um, and I've, I'm really delighted with the panel that we've got to do that and to just mull it over. They've been given that impossible task of five or six minutes to give us their initial provocation thoughts. And for those of you who haven't been here before, the format is that after they've done that, I'll be going out to the audience for clusters of four or five contributions, then coming back to the panel. And it is a genuine public conversation. So let's uh, uh, look at who we've got, and I'll introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. So we're first of all going to hear from Tim Stanley, who's a columnist and leader writer at the Daily Telegraph. But I know you've got a new role, Tim. So what is your new job title? As of tomorrow, I am a sketch writer. They gave me the job on Friday. I said, when do I start? They said, Monday. Right. <laughs> Such is life. Congratulations, Tim. Thank you. Um, uh, Tim was actually uh, is, uh, on the Moral Maze uh, on Radio 4 as a panelist with me um, and uh, is a very thoughtful commentator, um, I'm sure you'll all agree, but most importantly, he's the author of a new book, which is out tomorrow, in fact, although it's on sale here, 
He's holding it up. Uh, whatever happened to tradition, history belonging as... Sorry, what is it? God, I'm, I can't read my own writing. Read it out. Oh, I can't remember. Uh, history, <laughs> history belonging and the future of the West. Oh, God, it is, it is what it says. Right, OK. But actually, the themes of the book are what partly inspired this session. So it's great to have Tim with us. I'm then absolutely delighted that we've got Dr. Stephen Blackwood, who is the founder and president of Ralston College in Savannah. And what a treat to have him here from the US. We try at the Battle of Ideas to have an international group of panelists. It hasn't been that feasible this year. We've had a few sneak in under travel rules. But as soon as we were alerted to the fact that Stephen was in the UK, we nabbed him. So thank you, Stephen. His writing appears in the Wall Street Journal, the National Post, New Criterion, First Things, The Federalist, and he's author of a book on the ancient Roman philosopher poet Boethius entitled The Constellation of Boethius as Poetic Liturgy, which is coming out in paperback in 2022. But we're delighted to have you here, Stephen, and I know from the kind of work that you've been doing in the US that you'll have interesting things to share with us. We've then got Professor Akil Ahmed, Next to me, who is Director of Amplify Consulting, Professor of Media at the University of Bolton, former Head of Religion at Channel 4 and the BBC, which is where I first met him. And he has commissioned a whole range of very important documentaries. The first documentary on the Quran, first documentary on the life of Muhammad, has won BAFTAs, Emmys and RTS awards for the programmes that he was responsible for. He's a non-executive director of the Advertising Standards Authority and of Ofcom and of the Higher Education Funding Council in Wales. And he also is the convener or one of the organisers of the Literature Festival, of Bradford Literature Festival, which I've spoken at, and which was one of the first literature festivals, I think, to go live and have face-to-face -face very bravely. So we're delighted that Akil is with us. We then have Jodie Ginsberg, who is the chief executive of... Uh, Inter you see, I can't read my writing. What's it say? Internews Europe, God, pathetic. Internews Europe. By the way, if you've ever seen me speaking in the Lords, that's what I do, write my speech out and I can't read my own writing. Anyway, which is a media development charity. I apologise, Jodie. That's all right. Um, she's also the former chief executive of Index on Censorship. And in her biog, and all their biogs uh, are on the website, the proper long ones, it says that she's a recognised expert on media freedom and freedom of expression issues. I'd just like to say it's not, I wouldn't call her a recognised expert. I'd actually say that Jodie is a heroine of free speech and free press in the UK. Uh, she says in her bio that she's a passionate believer in the importance of good arguments and good heels. So she's also got a, a good sense of humour. But Jodie has actually done a huge amount, um, really bravely, I think, in going on the offensive in terms of free speech and media freedom, which I think is essential. We're then going to hear from uh, Professor Frank Ferradi a soci uh, sociologist and social commentator, a prolific author, uh, a public intellectual who speaks throughout uh, the world on uh, the numerous books that he has. His new book is also one of the things which inspired the session. It was launched live here yesterday. Uh, it's 100 Years of Identity Crisis, uh, Culture War Over Socialization. And also his other book that he wrote during lockdown was Democracy Under Siege, don't let them lock it down, which I think is a brilliant uh, uh, and absolutely essential reader for anyone interested in democracy. Um, I'm going to start with Tim, but if I can just say to you all, there's no answers to this. 
I've no idea what any of the speakers are going to say, and it's meant to be open-minded. And therefore, I hope that people join in the conversation in the spirit of that. But can we give a warm welcome to our speakers, first of all. <laughs> and then, Tim, if you can kick us off, please. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, the book is out on Thursday. Uh, you can buy it on pre-order. And I recommend you buy it before the reviews come out. I think it's pretty obvious that we do have a crisis of confidence in Western identity. As Claire has said, the hook for this debate was our humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan, which represented uh, perhaps a reluctance to fight for our values, but also the growing uncertainty about what those values are, or if we can confidently call them right or moral. Here at home, we are told that the West is inherently racist. Objective truths we once held to be self-evident are now eclipsed by the subjectivity of lived experience. Free speech is under attack, and democracy is regarded with suspicion because it keeps giving us the wrong answers. Some people, an interesting coalition of grumpy conservatives and muscular liberals, say that the problem is that we are giving up on this thing called the Western tradition. I think they're dead wrong. I would say that everything I have described to you is not a diversion from the modern Western tradition, but it's natural terminus. Why? Because in our curious corner of the world, we are perhaps unique for having developed a tradition that is anti-tradition, a tradition that slowly and inevitably erodes the certainties and sense of community that are essential for the flourishing of a tradition. You and I are children of the Enlightenment. More than that, we are its spotty, horny, horrible teenagers. Now, I don't wish to mischaracterize the Enlightenment because there were 17th and 18th century philosophers who believed in God, and there were clerics at the time who embraced science and change and rationalism. But the Enlightenment was, broadly speaking, a reaction against the settled religious and political traditions of the medieval era. And in trying to set us free from these inherited, arguably irrational constraints on individual behavior and belief, the Enlightenment did many wonderful things recognizing the dignity of the individual, expanding our choices, and building institutions to enhance our liberties, such as parliaments. But by valorizing deconstruction and questioning, by encouraging Westerners to challenge everything about our lives and the way we live constantly, it has also unleashed upon us a permanent revolution, one that was always going to end, eventually, in devouring the Enlightenment itself. In recent years, new movements on the right and left have intuited what's going on and have developed their own critiques of the Enlightenment. Many of them can be labeled under the umbrella term post-liberal. And these critiques reflect their own neuroses and obsessions. The right is critical of our present Western order from the perspective of culture. It says, for example, that while feminism can be seen as a triumph for equality and individualism, it has also contributed to the decline of the family and a plunging birth rate and has shaken up traditional notions of gender so violently that we are, now not quite, we are now not entirely sure what male or female really mean. Feminists, say the cultural right, are thus reaping what they have sown. The problem is, is that conservatives refuse to acknowledge, as the left is keen to point out, their own role in undermining Western society and tradition via their promotion of unfettered capitalism. But there has proven to be nothing more enlightening than free market capitalism, but also nothing more destructive or radicalizing. 
As Marx and Engels wrote in 1848, as always ahead of the curve, in the bourgeois order, all fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. And that beautiful Marxist phrase, all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned. Feminists did not export men's jobs to China in the 20th century. Business did that. And by doing it, businesses undermine trust in business and thus trust in free trade, encouraging the working class to take a punt on Donald Trump and Brexit. When representatives of capital brought their concerns about Brexit to Boris Johnson, they were against it, needless to say. The prime minister, who is always sensitive to the popular mood, replied, fuck business. I'm sure most of us here today would defend Western values because they have been, by and large, benevolent, especially when contrasted with the alternative. There is a reason why so many Afghan women, for instance, would like to come to Britain and not stay in Afghanistan with the Taliban. But I do think we need to expand the criteria of Westernness, to rethink the term. First, do not assume that to be Western is to be liberal and capitalist. Christianity is Western, so is socialism, Marxism as well. These systems of belief are critical of consumerism and critical of individualism, and they have something to offer to this debate. Second, don't let us limit ourselves to the West of the Enlightenment, but go back further to the medieval <coughs> order that was different, but also contained the seeds in humanism from which the Enlightenment sprung. Rather than obsessing about the future, sometimes it is useful to root progress in a better understanding of where we have come from and the benefits of family, belonging, loyalty, transcendence, and, as the book argues, tradition. We would also do, what, do well to look beyond Europe and America to see how other societies have coped with similar stresses to our own. Japan, for example, has many, many faults and contradictions, but seems to have somehow modernized while remaining true to itself. Finally, I see nothing wrong with a dash of modesty when contemplating what it means to be Western, and I reject any kind of chauvinism towards it. I leave you with this uncomfortable thought. As we fled Kabul, there was a hideous terror attack that killed hundreds of innocent people. The American president, Joe Biden, displaying his typical grasp of Catholic theology, said there could be no forgiveness. A drone strike was ordered to eliminate the suspect. Almost inevitably, they got the wrong man. The Americans killed 10 innocent people, including seven children. This act was not, in this act was not a display of any positive set of Western values, but of course it was incompetent and immoral. And if Westerners cannot be self-critical, if they cannot behave in a civilized manner, then we should not be in the business of trying to export what we call civilization <coughs> to other people. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tim. Lots of things I want to... Uh talk to you about and argue with you on, on that one, but uh, absolutely a great way to set out the scene. Stephen, your thoughts, please. Thank you, it's wonderful to be here. I wanna make a few, if I can put it this way, sort of general reflections about the whole prospect of this conversation. Um, the first is that I think we need to keep in mind that Western values, however we may want to define and construe them, go back much, much further than the Enlightenment. There's a fairly continuous development in the West, going back even, you could say, pre-Homer. I mean, I was recently in the ruins of Akrotiri, 
uh, just a thousand years before Homer, roughly speaking, uh, in, uh, in Greece, and there's a continuity there. So this is not just a story that begins, uh, no, I'm not suggesting anyone saying that either, but in the last couple of hundred years. That is to say, Western values are in a long, long development. The second is I want to query the whole language around values, because of course values suggest that these are more or less subjective preferences. I mean, you may like uh, red or green, or you may like beef or lamb, or prefer to be uh, uh, vegetarian. It's just a matter of, of how you sort your preferences in life. And I want to suggest that at the heart of what we call the West is a, is a much more radical claim. And that is that, uh, that there, are, there are truths that are abiding, uh, that uh, we have access to as human individuals through our own subjectivity, our own capacity to think and grapple with the world through various faculties, and that, that, uh, that at a fundamental level what's going on there is not mere preference, but an encounter with reality itself. Uh, and so in a certain sense, I think the language of values is already conceding that we're simply in a space of, of a, uh, competing subject, subjective spheres out of which there could never be any truth emerging other than mere preference. And I'd say this, you see this, for example, in the Greek tragedies, you see the sense that you know, what's going on with, with Antigone or uh, in any of the other great uh, uh, dramas of ancient Greece, these are not suggested to be, well, you know, and she thought this, but rather there's a, there's a massive clash between uh, uh, perennial forces, uh, which the individual is capable of understanding him or herself uh, within. So that uh, leads me to say that at some level in the West, there's this basic idea that the individual is capable of understanding and navigating and situating himself within these bedrock realities. And if that is true, in the West I would say claims largely that it is, then that will be a reality that's found in other cultures and civilizations as well, precisely because it's a universal fact. But the, the, in, the, in our tradition in the West, we come at this from the standpoint of, uh, where one of the languages this is given, or vocabularies, is of the logos, that is to say the, the ordering, the, the comprehensibility of reality, which is also deep within us. And, of course, it's on that basic underlying reality that all these enlightenment, so to speak, values depend. Freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, freedom of conscience. Those are ways of enshrining the individual's ability or securing the possibility of their navigating themselves in relation to that. And that finally brings me to, uh, to say I think we, we have to ask very hard if we're going to talk about civilization and values, what is, it all, what is it all for? I would suggest that civilizations are not valuable in themselves. They are valuable for their capacity to help individual human beings with names and dates of birth and particular times in history, like you and me, to realize what is in them, to bring out their potential into actuality. And so I don't think we can have a meaningful conversation at all about what the West is or about what any civilization is or whether its values are worth defending without some vision of what the human being is and what the human being is made to be. 
And so I would ask you this question, and that is, you know, what does a human being in full flight look like? It seems to be without some sense of what a human being can become. We can't have a talk about civilization because the whole point of civilization is precisely that. So I'll leave you with this, uh, with this, this metaphor. In some sense, I would suggest uh, that every human being is a, is a Stradivarius, that is to say, a beautiful instrument. But it's not inevitable that, it, that we learn how to play what we are made to do. But if we can have a culture that enables as many or all of us to do that as well as circumstances permit, I would say that is not only worth defending, but the only thing worth defending. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. That was really uh, wonderful and profound and worth uh, us unpicking afterwards. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Um, Akko, your thoughts, please. Um, well, thank you for the invitation. And um, I'm, if you could just indulge me, I'm going to come at this not necessarily, from the, not necessarily from some of the same points, I should imagine, but actually from somebody who is from the West, but actually isn't from the West and may have a different interpretation of some of the things that we take for granted. Um, so what are Western values? I think we all have an interpretation of what we think they are. And if you've been a good student and read the reading, then you'll know that there's some big things that come out of it, such as, you know, are Western values in decline and under attack? And secondly, just how do we define them? Um, and for me, growing up, Western values were effectively white values from within a his Christian historical context. And I know that's very simplistic, but the reality is the values I, I was referring to were probably British values. Um, and so I actually ask a question in this day and age, is there really such a thing as Western values? And if we use that term, are we simply reinforcing a view that all Western nations are equal and have the same values? And, have, and, how, do they, and how do they act upon those values if, they, if you actually think for one second that they actually are all sharing something? So do we actually all agree? Or, so do we all agree as nations and as people or are we able to just pick and choose the ones we think define us or the ones that we think we like that somebody else shares from within, uh, shares of a similar nature to us. So we don't, I actually think, have the same kind of values, and I'm actually very grateful for that. No, I actually think what we have are a set of values that evolve over time, and we have British values, Americans have American values, Greeks have Greek values, French have French values, Russians have Russian values, etc. And we may choose certain things that we think are very similar, but that's not necessarily to say that they're exactly the same or that they're a one codified kind of group of values. So I suppose a key question is, can someone who isn't from the West have these same values? The answer to me is yes, because as an individual, you can pick and choose and decide to live by whatever set of values you want. And as a wider point, I suppose, are we really that arrogant to suggest that somebody else doesn't have values which we would think of as being Western or of being something or, or of being good? I'm presuming that when we say Western values, we're talking about the things that we think are great, like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to live your life equal, uh, in, a, in, in the way that you would want to live. And as somebody who, believe me, is no fan of the Taliban and probably would be one of the first people they would string up if they were ever in power, um, what Tim just casually mentioned, and in a, in a way, which is, you know, 10 people were killed by Joe Biden in that, in that uh, drone attack. Um, the most drone attacks that have ever taken place happened under President Obama, and thousands and thousands of innocent people in Pakistan, I think tens of thousands of innocent people in Pakistan were killed. 
but those particular Western values, I suppose, we don't really talk about. Um, can we ex accept that at certain points in history or today, others may have similar values that we've had? And, and if you've read in a reading, we can talk about while Europe's values may not have been particularly enlightened, there were certain other uh, cultures around the world which had very enlightened values at that time. No, what I think of are specific aspects of these shared Western values, particularly military intervention in countries like Afghanistan or Iraq, are they ones that we really want to be proud of? We've talked about the retreat from Afghanistan, but we've not asked a question about what we were doing there in the first place, and actually whether or not we were there as we've retrofitted an argument that says we were there to kind of nation build, but we weren't there to nation build on the 12th of September in 2001. We were there for revenge. Uh, so I think that's an important thing to discuss at some point as well. So yeah, so today many people are challenged by the decline in, West, in, in Western values. This might be an attempt to hark back to an era where they believe these values existed. There may be, an, there may be a reaction to changes in, in technology, in in society, in demographics, and we've seen that throughout history in the, it, as well. But if, we, if you humor me, me again, and while I talk about British values as opposed to Western values, they've always, in, they've always evolved. We've had the Reformation, the Enlightenment, slavery, its abolition, empire, de democratization, war, etc. All of these things have changed the values. So there is no set of Western values that we could pinpoint to today that haven't evolved from various different times. Nor do I think we really have shared Western values that, in the sense that, you know, do we take ownership over some of the darker moments and the darker things that have happened in, in, with our colleagues in, uh, and with ourselves as well? Are these Western values to be proud of? I mean, I'm not coming at this from some kind of like extreme lefty kind of liberal position. I'm just actually asking the question, which is, we talk about Western values, but actually we only talk about them from a positive. We never talk about the negatives. And looking at it from somebody who may not necessarily have... If you look at it through the prism and the eyes of somebody who may not who has seen another side of Western values, they're not particularly great ones, are they? So I think the ones that we should, ha I think we have to have a conversation about. What do we mean when we keep talking about Western values? Are we? Is it some kind of notion of the past that we think is amazing, that uh, some ro ro we look at through rose-tinted spectacles, or is it just a justification for our self-interest, our political expediency, and our desire to take? things from other people and dress it up in something that we call Western values. That's it. Uh, thanks, Akal. I think that's an entirely useful, corrective and challenge and exactly the kind of things I want to talk about. So I'm delighted you've raised them. Jodie. Thank you very much. So I'd like to take us from out of the realms of theory and history and philosophy and talk about something very real, very personal and very here and now. I run an organization called Internews that has been working in Afghanistan with staff for over 20 years, doing what our critics might say was trying to impose Western values and our supporters would say is trying to encourage the building of democracy. So in other words, supporting journalists to be able to work independently and free from propaganda and free from harassment. For the past eight weeks, I have spent almost every day receiving emails and phone calls from desperate individuals trying to understand why they have been abandoned by those who funded them and find passage out. Journalists that we know personally have been shot, threatened, and are now in hiding. 
These aren't theories, these are real people's lives. And it really came home to me last week, I was in Tirana, Albania, where a number of, of these journalists have found temporary homes, and on a panel very much like this one with three Afghan journalists, two of them were women, and one of them was 23 years old. She's grown up in a country where education for girls was a right. She's always received education. She's still uh, very much cognizant of living in a patriarchal society. She used to have to ask her dad and her 19-year-old, her, her younger brother, for permission to do anything. But she was a journalist. She was a journalist on a radio station. And she was able to do things like interview the Taliban. When Kabul fell, she had to flee with her family and one bag. This amazing woman viewed education not as a value bestowed on her by the West and blessed by us, but as her right as a woman, as a human being. And what I really want to argue is that the things that we talk about as Western values are actually universal values. And in fact, by labeling them as Western values, we do ourselves a disservice and in many cases uh, are actually making it much more difficult for ourselves to persuade people of their intrinsic value. So if they're universal values, why have we seen this backsliding? Why is democracy on the wane in so many places? Why are we seeing an unfolding of so many of the freedoms that we have been enjoying, certainly since 1989? Why has Afghanistan been such a failure? Well, I would argue that that's not because of the failure of Western values, or what I would call universal values, but in the way that we've sought to persuade people to move out of their positions, to move out of the positions that fail to value human beings as intrinsically an equal worth. Um, as we've already heard, marching into a country and claiming your nation building whilst you're also backed by a huge army is perhaps not the way, best way to persuade people that your values are the right ones. In fact, we've often used mechanisms that are vastly at odds with the values we claim to be promoting that are intrinsically undemocratic while we're promoting democracy, that don't use the rule of law while we're claiming that we want to introduce the rule of law, that fail to be just while we're claiming to want justice for people. We've seen it in Iraq, we've seen it in Afghanistan, and this, I believe, is at the heart of the problem, not Western values, but our failure to uphold them in our own behaviors when we're seeking to explain and support others in them. And what I really feel passionately about is that we haven't failed to do that simply in our international behavior. We fail to do it at home. I can tell you now, having spent decades working internationally, that autocrats notice when we fail to uphold those values at home. They really do. And it only emboldens autocrats to see the UK, the US, adopting the same non-democratic, non-enlightened, non-human rights supporting uh, initiatives. So the right to protest, for example. The new policing bill that was introduced by the UK is manna from heaven to the Putins of this world because it simply reinforces the idea that we are just hypocrites, that we say we are democratic, that we say that we believe in the rule of law, but actually we, don't, we pay lip service to it. The online harms bill that's going through at the moment, which seeks to, to keep us safe online, 
but actually will end up restricting our freedom to express ourselves, the very freedoms, the British values that likes of Boris Johnson and others claim to support. So I really want us to think of that 23-year-old female journalist living in a one-bedroom room with her entire family away from home. She doesn't want to come to the UK, as Tim has asserted. She wants to go home. She wants to go home to her country to live her life as an empowered woman with equal rights. That's what she wants, and that's because she believes in that as a universal value, not because it's a Western one. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jodie, and I do think that that 23-year-old journalist is somebody who should be part of this conversation, and I'm glad that you've raised her as to, for us all to remember her when we're having this conversation, because I think that is a useful way to think it, about it. But, Frank, your thoughts, finally. Um, and, by the way, while he's speaking, get ready to put your hands up, because we're going to be going out to the audience straight away. I think there's a danger <coughs> of uh, talking at cross-purposes. I think the very language of values is often a symptom of philosophical and moral illiteracy uh, for the very simple reason that the minute you talk about values, you have to kind of detach them from a web of meaning through which we make sense of human experience. And I think we're doing that a little bit now as it happens. So we've got to be a little bit careful because the kind of problems we're dealing with uh, should not be uh, uh, sort of tackled by anecdotes about our own individual or personal or whatever experiences. But we do need to take a step back and understand, you know, what is the human predicament today? And I think it's very important to realize that when we're talking about values, you know, or Western values, we're not only talking about something that is uh, touches upon our humanity as a, as a human experience, but what we're also dealing with is not just simply a list of what is good and what is bad, but we're talking about an orientation towards the world. That's the key thing, an orientation, a, a sensibility through which makes a, a, a sense of our lives. For me, you know, sort of as a humanist, you know, sort of I still find there's something very attractive about uh, a, a body, a tradition, that evolved historically from the Greeks to the Romans to Christianity, Judaism, all the way to the uh, Enlightenment, Renaissance included, which is something very, very precious. It's a gift that is available to any human being who is open to that kind of approach. And I think that what I take from that historical legacy is the fact that we have an orientation that recognizes the need to conserve. We have, we have to conserve certain things about our past that are really quite precious and important. We also have to encourage rebirth because periodically we have to <clears throat> recreate uh, and, and, and in a sense re, uh, rebirth something that has gone on beforehand, but also is open to experimentation. I think that one of the nice things about for example, the shift from the medieval era to the Renaissance is this incredible um, emphasis on rebirth where you take what has gone on beforehand and you give that an entirely new meaning. Uh, and and, and in, in the course of that, you make it richer than it was beforehand. And what's also ex uh, exciting about the Enlightenment is that the Enlightenment, people don't realize, it actually is built upon the foundation, what has gone on beforehand, but is totally 100% committed to yielding to the future. It's open to experimentation. And I think what, ha what happened with the Enlightenment, I think what I think is quite 
interesting is that it forces us into a struggle, a day-to-day -day struggle, at least intellectually, between upholding tradition without turning tradition into an ideology, which is you know, making tradition into traditionalism, where it becomes just like an ideology like anything else. Because the minute you do that, you both empty it of meaning, and you also become enslaved to something that is, uh, is in a sense, dead. So the point I want to emphasize is that these three uh, accomplishments of conservation, rebirth, and experimentation are actually linked together. And they come into their own when they exist in a relationship, a dynamic relationship with one another. You take away one aspect of it, you take away conservation, and you're left with nothing. There's no foundation on which you can build on. You take away experimentation, and you foreclose the future. So I think that's the way I think it's useful to think about the big questions that confront us in an intimate way every aspect of our life. Now, the big challenge that faces us today is that, for better or worse, the West, but not just the West, the whole world, is suffering from a kind of historical amnesia. We kind of think that history began after the Second World War, a kind of a year zero history, and everything before that was bad. I mean, that's the way the, the general kind of narrative goes. You know, Westerners were guilty, horrible slave owners, you know, sort of Cicero, you couldn't trust the guy because he had slaves and all the rest of that. And what you end up with is you see that experience that I've been describing through this obsessive presentism. This obsessive presentism which expresses nothing more than its continual estrangement from the past, which continually insists on psychically distancing ourselves from what our ancestors said. Because whatever our ancestors said is bad, and the reason why it's bad is because it was in the past. So the past con condemns that whole experience in a very acute kind of way. And what we ended up with is a form of history that I, I suppose I can best describe as accusatory history, where you accuse history, where you accuse the past of everything that is wrong with us today, our trauma, our insecurities, our anxieties. They're not of our own making. They're something this, that the burden of our legacy has imposed upon us. And what it does is that this accusatory history imposes on us this very insecure, presentist, narcissistic mode uh, through which we then engage with, uh, with, the, with the present and the past, and particularly with morality, with kind of moral issues, which we continually uh, sort of devalue and continually uh, sort of reduce to this discussion of values, this different kinds of debate. So I think that's the kind of big problem that we're kind of confronted with. The loss of the sense of the past is one of the biggest tragedies that has unfolded. Because without having a sense of the past, it is simply not possible to leave our prison, or the present is prison, and actually face the future. And I think what happened in Afghanistan and what happened in many, many parts of the world can only be understood if we take several steps backwards and understand the kind of mental orientation that has evolved in recent decades, which gives us this uh, illiterate, illiterate way in which we deal with these kinds of very, very big questions. I just want to end by one little point uh, in response to what Tim said, which is about the Enlightenment. See, the way that I look at it, I'm a, I have to confess myself, I'm a lover of the Enlightenment. I'm completely committed to it. But I think what I like about the Enlightenment is that it provided an opportunity for, for, for allowing the, the moral norms that existed to come into fruition. And the way it did that 
was by developing the concept of moral autonomy. I know a lot of people, particularly conservatives, are uncomfortable with autonomy. But actually, when you understand autonomy in a moral sense, it's not individualism. It's not about, you know, sort of promiscuously, you know, sort of giving up all restraints. It basically means that you're prepared to live with the consequences of your decision making. And it's only when you made those moral choices that those moral, that those moral choices actually really come into their own. They're no longer just simply given to you. you know, they're still, they are given to you, but you're doing more than that. You're taking them, you're evaluating them, and you're making them your own. And I think that, uh, that uh, accomplishment of the Enlightenment is something that uh, makes it possible for me to get out of bed every morning and face the horrible world that we live in. Thank you. Um, it's tempting to allow the panel to chat to each other uh, because obviously they've got a lot of differences and emphasis and probably more substantial differences. But what I want to do is to use your questions to allow them to respond to each other and the questions, right? So that's why I'm going to do it. Okay, I've got a number of hands that I'm going to take. I've got a complaint to make against Tim. <laughs> your sketch of the current context was so good, now I'm going to have to subscribe to the bloody Tory graph. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there is a question uh, in, built into this, which is, um, you did seem to me to set up uh, a counterposition between tradition um, and, and, roughly speaking, self-consciousness, um, as if they are inherently, um, uh, well, what, the, the one is inherently corrosive of, of the other. Um, and I do really want to take issue with that in the sense that surely an important aspect of self-consciousness um, is the capacity to discriminate. I mean, Frank Freire used the term moral authority, but I think we could just as easily say discrimination. The, di the capacity to discriminate between what's in tradition worth preserving and, and where we need to e experiment. So I, I don't think there is inherently uh, uh, an antithesis between um, self-consciousness and tradition because built into the self-consciousness is the capacity to discriminate and to identify what it is about tradition that is worth preserving. But to the whole panel, the question is, is there something, or was there, is there now something about the West which allows this capacity, a, a synthesis of elements drawn from all over the world, but nonetheless a capacity to discriminate um, which isn't necessarily found all over the world. Um, and if that is identifiably Western, then that's something I would want to preserve. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah, I just wondered how um, uh, the panel um, make a distinction between their own view of the problems we face um, and a kind of general orientation towards declinism and also a kind of apocalyptic uh, sort of sense that everything poses an existential threat, whether that's Extinction Rebellion thinking there is an eco-apocalypse, whether that's feminism thinking that women, women face a kind of genocidal terror of misogyny, or whoever it is, everything gets posed in this existentially threatening terms. So how do you avoid or, or actually find your own orientation on that when it comes to the values that we might want to uphold which are more rational? Jonathan Raunch wrote a very interesting book in the early 90s defending the liberal scientific methods and cited that it was under threat from humanitarian and extreme egalitarian 
methods, which now seem to have come into full force. Stephen Pinker wrote a book about enlightenment, now also defending that method. Um, would the panel agree that those are very important values to defend? And what would they have to say on why the challenge is so big now, as opposed to previous challenges, which happened in the 60s and perhaps even in 1848, and, but, but particularly now, those, those, that, that, those values are really under threat. I want to go back to Joe's point about bringing it from the international to the domestic, because um, schools, as many teachers you know, will, will, will tell you, have to teach British values. And those are normally identified as things like right to speech, right to a fair trial, and so on. Yet what one often sees is not just that they're denied, but they are actually attacked. So, for example, the right to a proper defence in court is fine unless you're accused of certain types of crime, when the right to a vigorous defence is seen as an affront. The right to speak out, oh, we've had a lot of that this weekend, unless you hold certain views. The right to believe what you want, but not to display anything about it or to proselytise. So it's that way in which what one would have thought were basic values of whether they are universal, British or Western or whatever, but that they are seen not, uh, as not just unfashionable, but actually a threat, you know, making people feel unsafe or whatever. So it seems to me that when you have, as, we have, as I've seen recently uh, in social media, free speech in inverted commas, libertarian in inverted commas, then we've got us a real crisis whereby our values are seen as threats to something, and I'm not quite sure what. Um, I'd like to, to link something Akil said to what Tim said, which we are inclined to see our Western values in a positive way. So you get a value like tolerance, tick, 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 good, good, good. But what happens when tolerance becomes indifference? And to link it to what Tim said, in the industrial sphere over the last 20, 30 years, it has become indifference because we're indifferent to what is made where and by whom. Where? If it's made by Uyghurs in slave conditions, no problem. By whom? If it's not made in Airdrie or Backley or Hartlepool, doesn't matter. So it seems to me that actually they, these ideas do link, actually, in the seeds of our present political chaos and to some extent our industrial decline are actually very Western. Hello there. So I grew up in a very small rural community in the north, and I'm not going to tell you a long life history, but I'm... Um, very, very English and grew up where lots of people had never been within a hundred mile, never been beyond a hundred miles of where we all lived. Um, I'm now very, very fortunate. I've, I'm now also deliberately American. Um, my, uh, my, my wife is Jamaican. We've got a family that includes a large number of people who are of Indian descent. And I've been very fortunate to travel and live in many countries around the world. And the individual values of the people with whom you interact on a personal relational level are often very, very similar. People all really seem to want the same things. The values, however, that we're talking about, it seems to me, um, almost don't matter except in how they are manifest and in two particular ways. And I'd like to ask the panel about institutions as embodiments of values and the role of those institutions and people's choices to participate in those institutions as important vehicles for the values that we really think are important. Thank you, very interesting. And then that gentleman there. I think uh, several of the panelists emphasized very properly that we need to go for, much further back to understand Western values today. Uh, Stephen took us way back to the Greeks. 
and even further back again. And from the Greeks, we understand philosophy. Western philosophy began with Greek philosophy, and it developed right up. And as uh, Frank said, the Enlightenment uh, depended on what went, went before. For, uh, likewise, uh, Western mathematics began with the Greeks. And Western science was founded, I, I believe, also comes from, uh, it derives from Greeks, particularly from Aristotle. So, in order to understand Western values, we do need to go way, way back. And Frank has emphasized the importance of that understanding. He's referred specifically to the fact there's a loss of the sense of the past today. I think that's at the root of much of what's happening. Thank you. Uh, thank you. All right, listen, I'm just going to, um, you know, like, let me start with Stephen. Anything you want to pick up? Just a couple of points, Stephen, you just want to reflect on. Not directly, but, you know. Well, I'd like to uh, just very quickly uh, echo the point made by the first questioner that self-consciousness and tradition are not opposed. I mean, cl clearly, uh, we can know the truth of a tradition. We can know why it's valuable. We can kind of understand it and thus self-consciously preserve it, if indeed it should be, or put it in the dustbin if, if, if no. Um, but I'll stop there for now. Okay, great. Um, Tim, anything you want to pick up? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, <laughs> First of all, uh, obviously because of the nature of the title uh, of this talk, I focused upon what is wrong with the West rather than making a defense of tradition. So to pick up on what the first speaker said and what Frank said, I should make it absolutely clear that the beauty of tradition and the surprising thing about tradition is the way it evolves and the way that it adjusts. And the ones that survive, there's an almost Darwinian quality to good traditions and the one that survives. They usually react to and interact with cultures and with other traditions and are changed by them. My concern is I think that uh, what I, I locate many of the problems in the Enlightenment. Frank picks up on the post-war era. Either way, I think that it, what we can crudely, for the sake of time, call the current liberal order has itself pickled. That's part of the problem with it, uh, that it's, it's developed a set of orthodoxies which are very untraditional in their inability to evolve or adapt, but mean that our policymakers, when they come across a certain problem, think, I must do this this way. That's the right way to do it. Um, and so that's the problem, is I'd say that uh, our contemporary order is acting in quite an untraditional way because it has ossified like that. Um, secondly, on this point about declinism, which came from the audience, this is absolutely true. Uh, I have a collection somewhere uh, of people saying things in the past that could be said today. Um, and, and you can go right the way back. One of my favorites is universities. There almost hasn't been a period of history in which people didn't hate people who went to university. Right, it's just, it's particularly in the 20th century. And I think, I think it's uh, Bonhoeffer, I think it's Bonhoeffer, uh, went to a theological college in New York in about the 1930s, and he said, they never talk about Jesus. They're all just left-wing liberals. <laughs> and, and so every, everyone's made this complaint. So declinism is, is almost perennial. On the point about Pinker and Enlightenment now and the scientific method, uh, I read that book, and I ended up picking up on it quite a lot in my book, uh, because I, I thought it was so interesting the way in which I, I half agreed and sympathized with him. But my problem with Pinker is, again, I would say he's, he's an example of things pickling, um, because Pinker has turned the scientific method into a, a sort of a religious dogma almost. Um, and he says it's okay to discuss anything insofar as it is reasonable. We don't have time to get into this, but this is a, another problem with our contemporary order, is we have elevated this very vague concept of reason so high that it becomes very easy to exclude things which we say, well, we can't discuss that because that's not reasonable. And usually the things that aren't reasonable are things like God. Uh, which brings me to... Um, Finally, quick. Yes. Okay, which brings me to this final point, which is I don't think anyone yet has mentioned Jesus, which is really surprising because the West is Judeo-Christian. 
I mean, the Greeks have been mentioned. I talked about the Enlightenment. Uh, but Judeo-Christianity is, is really the big part of this. And when we talk about universalism, well, that's a Jewish and a Christian concept, right? It's the idea that this isn't just my God. It's the God of all mankind. So you shouldn't just be tolerant of my God. You really ought to actually defer to it in some way. I personally am a Christian, so I operate within that moral sphere. I recognize that most people nowadays are not. And so one has to talk to people about morality and values in a, in a different way so that takes in, to acknowledges that they don't come from my perspective. But let us not forget the West is Judeo-Christian, and Judeo-Christian Christianity is at once very conservative, but it's also an incredibly radicalizing force, and to some extent it, 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 it explains this permanent revolution that I've described. In many ways, the constant self-critique of Western society and this interest in the individual and in moral autonomy, in many ways, these are Christian inheritances. Uh, just for anyone, just to do a little advert, and also so that we don't all start talking about Jesus, because I couldn't cope. Um, later on today, I am chairing a session called Onward Christian Soldiers, very originally, uh, actually about the pickle that Christianity's managed to get itself into. Right. So for, for all that one can say it, and it's a panel full of people who would profess faith but would say we're in crisis. So that's the irony on that one. But anyway, Jesus will get a lot of mentions then, so don't overdo it now. Uh, Jody, anything you want to pick up on? Just very quickly, so I think there's a couple of uh, reasons why the Enlightenment values that a couple of people have talked about m might be under threat in new ways, and that's for a large part of the 20th century, the exercise of those values enabled people to gain power in ways that they hadn't done before, right? So being educated, if you came from a poorer family, was a means to get into positions of power in a way that it never was before or as a woman being able to have the vote gave you the ability to have power in ways that you never had before and increasingly um, people are seeing that that's not necessarily true anymore that the espousal of those values the exercise of those values isn't linked to power and money and I think therefore can become devalued if the thing that you really want is you know just to have a roof over your head um, and to exist and you don't need to necessarily uh, engage in those, then that's a reason why it becomes less attractive and less important. And certainly autocrats uh, the world over are seeing that they don't necessarily need to engage in democratic behavior because they will continue to be uh, engaged with, handed arms and supported by the West very happily without having to do any of that stuff. Uh, so that I think is one reason. The other one, and I wanted to pick up on the question about uh, schools is I think one of the reasons why people are less interested in issues around freedom of expression, for example, is because we've moved very much to a culture that's, that's about safety and risk aversion. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the many, many reasons why I think that's happening, but I think that's become the primacy for many people rather than that individual liberty, freedom of expression, and so on. I think the being safe has become prime, and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this, this battle between the two at the moment. Okay, thanks. Uh, Frank, anything you want to pick up? Yeah, a couple of things. I think the uh, West, the word West should be not understood geographically. We're not talking about a, a particular territory that's got a privileged access to moral truth. What we're talking about is an experience. And what I find very interesting is that in the 21st century, the people that are most like, the kind of people I like, because of the way they've absorbed this kind of legacy are often in India, are often in China, often in many, many places where there's a greater confidence in 
having a, cultivating a relationship with the past. And certainly among, amongst my students, you know, there used to be a time in the old days when my best students, this was like, I'm a very old guy, when I started teaching, my best students in those days were Jewish. Now they're just as boring as English people are in terms of their value. Now some of my best students are Indian and, and Chinese because they're, you know, their minds is completely buzzing with ideas and they take seriously. They actually read St. Augustine, right? They read you know, Cicero. They read all these things that are no longer read by Westerners themselves. The reason why this is happening now, I think, is because anything to do with morality and moral norms is always uh, a result of a balance between different strands within society. And in the last 200 years, there was a balance that was established between different movements. The socialists made the liberals a little bit more radical. The pressure from the liberals made the conservatives a little bit more nervous. The conservatives, in turn, and religious uh, sort of movements uh, play a very important role in acting as a counteracting tendency to some of these radicalizing trends. And I think what has happened in the more recent period is that uh, liberalism died, socialism died, conservatism you know, uh, lost its capacity to be conservative anymore, and, and religion, which Tim was talking about, is imploding from within. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not Christian really, but when I look at the Pope at the moment, you know, I find that his theology is a little bit estranged from the Catholicism that you know, used to exist in the past. When you look at the Church of England and the way they're distancing themselves from theological norms, you realize that all these things have gone. So the balance has unraveled. And I think as a result of that, we, we got no guidance at all. And young people going to school are being educated on, you know, on psychological values mm. rather than uh, being uh, in, you know, sort of uh, acquainted with the moral norms of courage or prudence, all the good things that you know, are in our tradition, that's gone. I think that's the problem that we're confronted with today. Yes. Uh, thank you. And Akel, anything you want to pick up? Yeah, no, some quick things. I mean, technology is something we've not talked about as well, because obviously a lot of these things have happened because of technology. I mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the often technological change involves a lot of fear and a reaction to that and we've seen that in the 20th century what we call now as fundamentalism is often related to that kind of like those changes in the industrial revolution so technology is something we should think about that actually makes us that that also brings home this whole notion of what we take for granted and what we know about so we know more about what's happening around the world if you were if you were a t if you were the teenage Akil in the early 80s and you were interested in what was happening in in a particular part of the world you got it from the BBC or ITV news and that was just a few a snippets here and there whereas now though we are we are connected in a nanosecond with what is happening around so people effectively can see what is happening and so therefore they see our governments and not behaving in a way which is which which we would which would ascribe to the kind of like this notion of what are so-called western values because we have no values we will deal with anybody and that's effectively that, that brings to that point that question about uh, that comment about um industrialization and people not caring where things are made or how they're made look at look at all these people screaming outside Newcastle United's ground now you know <laughs> right. they're, they're very interested in you know this would probably get me banned now from somewhere but they're, but they're very interested in you know the, the club being bought by people who you know are not very interested in freedom of speech so and, and, and a number of other things so there are all those things so I would just say Technology is something we need to really think about because it c connects to absolutely everything that we've talked about. And ultimately as well, you know, we pick and choose. 
Well, the language that we use is very important. Judeo-Christian, when I hear that, I'd, I'd just say, yeah, we'd say Abrahamic. And Western values and this whole thing that we talk about, the, the, uh, the, we've been talking about the Enlightenment and scientific technology, who brought it back to Europe? Who brought it back to the West? And also mathematics, who was it a combination of? People not actually from the West initially. So the language we use is very important. If we, don't, if we don't pay attention to that, and if we don't pay attention to what is happening today and what our historical background has been, and don't pay attention to why technology can hurt people as well as scare people and benefit them in the future, then this, this, this whole clash of civilizations or clash of or, the, or this inability to understand the other will just continue. Um, by the way, if anyone's interested in the Newcastle question, um, uh, there's a panel after this on whether sport can survive the culture wars, and I heard some of them having a big row last night over the Saudi Arabia Newcastle yeah, question, right. so I think that will come up. Have they signed up Jesus? <laughs> I'm just really glad you didn't ask me that, or even the Christianity one. That's yeah, all yeah well, you know, I, 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 I pick and choose. Uh, right, now. I'm just going to indulge in some accusatory presentism. I just wondered um, how the panel thought that um, today's celebrity and materialism has affected our civilization. All right, good question. I just wanted to ask the panel whether they thought that the lack of knowledge of history, I mean, history's been referred to a lot, but a lot of people today have very little historical knowledge whether it's of this country or of the world? And would better history teaching in schools and universities help in any way? Okay, thank you. Another panel on that later today, but anyway, right. Um, okay, um, we have thought of it all. Person over there, right at the Hi. back. Yeah, so I wanted to ask the panel if, um, they've talked a lot about Afghanistan. Are you perhaps talking about the wrong war? Um, my feeling about British values is that um, if Tim Stanley is right that they, uh, they have destroyed themselves, uh, perhaps the moment that somebody put the pillow over their face um, is, is Tony Blair uh, taking us to war uh, in Iraq. And my feeling is that at that moment we did not apologize for our mistake. We did not recognize that actually Britain knew better. Um, we followed American values, not British values. People marched to say that we felt this was the wrong thing to do. We had learned about withdrawing from our empire. We may not have apologized enough, but we had developed that. And uh, in that departure, I think ever since, we have been denying uh, our Britishness and uh, <coughs> continuing the destruction. And I think with an apology, we might be able to uh, rediscover the values that actually um, are important. And just to ask Mr. Um, Ahmed, perhaps um, on that, that theme, is it that uh, there are values and there is a failure of them? And we need to be very clear about separating those. Um, Britain's failed its values. That doesn't mean its values uh, are a bad idea. Okay, thank, uh, thank you. Right, okay, where are we? Yes. Um, hi there. Um, you can kind of organize or look at societies on a spectrum from the discomfort of the individual up to the discomfort of the collective. And, you know, what I think we would call the West is a sort of acceptance of some discomfort of the collective. But then we're increasingly moving towards saying that anything that discomforts the individual must be um, pushed down. So we, we, if objective fact 
discomforts an individual and it's the objective fact that must lose out. And on the other side of the spectrum, I can certainly see why a society like the Taliban's finds a 23-year-old journalist asking questions of those making decisions will be profoundly uncomfortable for, well, not just the leaders, but the other people around them. The problem is that the further we move away from the sort of mid, some sort of balance between um, the individual and the community, the less attractive our values appear to people coming from a, from a place where actually the community is more important, whether that's China or, um, or Afghanistan or somewhere. Uh, thank you very much. So who's got the microphone up? Yeah. Um, it's a, partly a response to uh, the lady who just spoke about um, uh, we should be apologising. One of the things that I think is true is that the British Empire wasn't dissolved in a kind of a, a voluntary way. It was very, you know, the British Empire was very much pushed apart, largely by nationalists in what was then termed the Third World, uh, who were using uh, Western values, essentially, to, to build new nations. And in that, following on from that, you, I, I therefore think that it's... Uh, if you look at Afghanistan as an example uh, of, of a complete disaster and say, well, we all know that you know, the, some of the roots of it go right back to Western um, intervention. It, it, well, the, the Soviet Union was busy trying to run the place in which they encouraged the emergence of the Mujahideen, which you could see is a terribly instrumental and very cynical um, abandonment of Western values. And so it, the question I end up with is, who's we? Why would we apologize? You know, when, when we talk about our values, it's a, I completely accept the idea of the importance of uh, Western values. But I do have a question about, well, we are all referring in this room to we, we in Afghanistan, we in, in the British Empire and so on. What do we really mean by we? Okay, thank you. I'm slightly arbitrarily now just wandering around pointing. Okay, um, I, I like this idea of human values over Western values. Um, during the pandemic, we heard a lot about the science and listened to the science. I can think of two high-profile scientists who suggested that we should move from a more individualist mindset to a more collectivist mindset. And, and maybe they've got a point, but there was a big part of me that thought, no, you need to get back in your box because your job is to produce data for human beings to make informed choices, not to try and control their lives. And I do sense sometimes that big institutions, big tech, are trying to control people rather than help people live an, an informed and free life. Uh, uh, thank you. Right, yeah. Morning. Could it be possible to decouple two things, A is a Western values and how they are imported? For example, a saying in Britain that British flag is a, is a horrible and colonialist is a horrible thing, I think, to say, because every country is proud of their, their heritage but we shouldn't mix it up with foreign interventions. I think that's where this where Western value problem comes from. Because Britain is a beautiful place for British people and people who live here. Problem comes with Britain or Western values when it's get imported overseas at gunpoint. And if we could decouple that, I think we could solve the problem. Is the problem here that the tension that's always existed between liberalism and democracy has now broken down and it's now developed into a conflict. Uh, that, there always has to be a tension because liberalism 
is about endpoints, and democracy is about a process. And the problem is what happens if the process doesn't give the endpoints that the Liberals want. Now, in the past, I think Liberals have already, uh, always accepted that the democratic will should prevail. They don't anymore. They are openly contemptuous of the idea that people should, <coughs> should determine their own destiny. So is that a useful way of framing this problem? And is the answer to ensure that democracy must ultimately prevail over, li over liberal wishes? Okay, thank you. And then finally here, um, and then I'm going to start back with you, Jodie. We've heard a, a lot of philosophy, uh, technology, um, history, and uh, religious views. We haven't entered at all into the legal space. This is relevant because apartheid was a perfection of a value and it was implemented in a certain way. Surely it's thought that the current Deputy Prime Minister wants to reform, redo the human rights legislation. Surely it depends a bit on how the values are implemented and whether they fundamentally change with their implementation. Partly goes to Tim Stanley's on tradition. No, thank you. Very interesting. Uh, Jodie, anything you want to pick up there? So I'm going to try and tie a couple together. I think absolutely the, the, this question about the tension between individual liberty and collective interest is always the, the, the inherent tension, right? In the, trying to protect the fact that we're all individuals and we want to do things differently, but we've all got to kind of act collectively in some way or have some structure that allows us to work together um, in, in the common good. And I think that is becoming increasing attention because I think people feel that the mechanisms to deliver on that collective interest are, are breaking down. And indeed, legal structures is therefore one way of keeping those various elements in check. And when you don't have that, then, then all hell breaks loose. I wanted to bring up the, the, the person who asked the question about community and community um, versus the individual. It's interesting, I've heard this a lot about, you know, well, we can't have certain rights for individuals because it's not in the interest of the community. When I hear that, what I hear is people using the word community to mean things that benefit those who are already in power um, uh, and the structures that already exist. And it's a very convenient way of keeping the status quo is by arguing that you can't change anything because ultimately it's all for the good of the community. And I think it's a very dangerous argument. Okay, thanks. Akul, anything you want to pick up? Um, yeah, no. I mean, the thing to remember is I don't have a problem with British values. I love British values. That's my point. I don't believe in this, this thing we're talking about of Western values. I think it's way too complicated and nuanced for that. Um, I think British values are amazing. And the reason what, you know, my parents came here as migrants from, they were born in India in the British Empire and then lived in Lahore, a big city. And when they came to Britain, they understood British values. The question is, would they understand British values today? And that's the thing about how they've evolved. And I think you're right about this whole thing, this whole notion about how we export and what we export and what, we, and, what we, and what language and what we pick and what we choose, etc. That's the real issue. I'm not somebody who's, who's trying to attack British values. I love British values. I'm saying we should be fighting for them, and the, but they will evolve and they will change, and we have to have that conversation about freedom of speech, and we have to have conversations as well about what we can and can't say. Because I wrote about this before, before social media. About, I wrote a paper on 
you know, we don't have true public service broadcasting because not everybody has the ability to speak equally. And I asked the question, where will those people go one day? From the point of view of, will they pay for a license fee? Well, social media has told us where they went, and, social, and, that, and where they went has, has created a world that I'm not particularly happy with, and I think is in contradiction with British values or uh, so-called Western values. Okay, thanks. Frank, anything you want to pick up on? Yeah, I, I can really relate to that uh, uh, woman who's obviously not English, uh, liking British values, also being a foreigner in a sense. I think it's very interesting that very often it is foreigners who live in England who really understand the importance of some of the you know, significant traditions and legacies that have gradually become crystallized within this island, which have global significance and, 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 and global importance. But I think the tragedy is, is that uh, what people refer to as British values are conspicuous by their absence within our society. And certainly what has happened over several generations is that as immigrants come into this country, instead of being exposed and, and, uh, and, uh, and educated in these values, and, and, and instead of uh, getting a, uh, developing a public educational system that expects people to become acquainted with these values and to discuss them with the hope of making it, making it their own and gradually internalizing it, we switched off and we developed a kind of uh, a segmented form of culture within Britain where, where there really isn't any attempt to project these values as being really, really important and significant. So if you look at the school curriculum and the kind of values that, that children learn, it's embarrassing. I mean, it, it, it gives a bad word to values because what it does is it takes entirely pragmatic, administratively created values rather than ones that have any organic relationship to what has gone on in the past. So what is the main value within our school system? It's diversity. Well, where I come from, diversity is a, is a description of the many. It's not a value. The other values that are promoted is non-judgmentalism, which violates the very meaning of the traditions that we actually come from, which is based fundamentally on judging one another, because that's the only way we can take each other seriously. So all the values that children get are basically bullshit values. I mean, they really are. Not so, so under these circumstances, we have to understand that we are creating our own goal. You know, so we are not exporting British values anywhere. We are exporting this stuff. And naturally, if I was in Afghanistani, or if I was East Europe, I am Eastern European, but as an Eastern European, I would regard these values as alien to my very existence, and I would reject them quite rightly. And I can really understand, and I know it's a bad thing to say, why a lot of young Muslim kids are much more attracted to uh, a version of radical Islam because it gives meaning to their life than to the stuff they get in school. I think it's quite understandable. Very often there's a kind of disconnect. And a lot of young uh, immigrants that come in here find that these things they're learning in school doesn't really touch their heart, doesn't really touch their soul. Okay, thank you. Uh, Stephen, anything you want to pick up? Yeah, I want to pick up on a few things that have been said. Some level that the, the, a culture is judged by its ability to transmit what is best in it to the young. It's a kind of lighting of the candles, you know, passing the flame. It's all kinds of wonderful metaphors. And, uh, you know, I don't think we can, the, the, the question about education and hit, teaching of history, I mean, it's no mistake that the iconoclasm and the, the desire to tear down is at a moment in which we're, do, we're failing so uh, poorly uh, to, to teach our own history or to educate the young into some sensibility of where they've come from. A quick anecdote, uh, 
1983, my parents moved across the country of Canada, bought a fixer-upper old farmhouse, and my dad's a big strapping guy, he wanted to knock out a wall, and he, it was Mother's Day 1983, took the sledgehammer, and he just started tearing down this wall in big uh, smashes of uh, wood and plaster, and at one point he came to a beam, and as he started wailing on this beam, the roof began to sag. Um, uh, of course, the point is a simple one, it's that if you, if you don't know what the, is, what the supporting structures are, you can accidentally just knock them out. And when you have a culture in which the young people think that, that you know, the entirety of your past is fundamentally oppressive, um, it's, you know, as the meme goes, you had one job and you failed. And so I would simply say that uh, against all that, I think we have, to, we have to see, in a certain sense, the poverty of our very moment also is an opportunity. The young are hungry. And if we don't give them something to eat, we have only ourselves to blame. Okay, thank you. Um, Tim, right, we're not, this is not, not final remarks, Tim, so just a few, a few quick points, and then I'm going to try and grab a few more from the panel, from the audience, and then final thoughts on the panel. Thank you. Uh, it has been suggested that what we're discussing are not Western values, but possibly it would be better to think of them as human values. Uh, I would say that I think that's an ironically quite Western way of seeing it. Uh, because it's the, it's, the, it's the Western idea, first of all, that values are indeed universal, but secondly, if you just left people alone, you'd have a noble savage and we'd all basically be the same and be democratic and liberal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you go to Iraq, as I did two years ago, uh, you, you, often, you, you do indeed meet people who are attracted to Western values, but you also encounter a great deal of surprising difference. Uh, and when I uh, interviewed the Yazidi people, um, who, who had gone through the most appalling oppression, uh, one thing they said is, we don't believe in democracy because their historical experience of it was, as one put it to me, like giving a gun to a child. Um, they, they don't trust the outcomes of democracy. But secondly, when I asked them what they think of the West, I was really struck by their contempt for it. Um, and some of the things they said about it, you'd find quite shocking. Uh, one, one criticism was too much immigration, um, <laughs> by, by which they meant you're allowing your society to be transformed uh, by Muslim migration. I don't agree with that. But that's what they said. That was their perspective. They're also very critical of sexual difference and particularly homosexual freedom and things like that. So you find it a great deal of striking uh, a difference between us. Um, so I don't, I don't think these things are necessarily universal. And my practical experience is that people are often very different and critical of each other rather than being all the same. Um, my final thing I just throw in when it comes to British values, um, I, I'm not entirely sure what they are. Uh, I, 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 I'm sure I would like them if I encountered them. Uh, but they seem to have gone out of the window in the last couple of years. For instance, I thought a basic British value was uh, to mind your own business. Um, but since the lockdown, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but and this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a serious point. This is why I, I think so much of what we call values, and, and this, is, this is your point, and it's very, it's very good. The values is too psychological. A value can emerge from a particular historical moment. There can be historical moments when it makes sense for a community to say, we are defined by minding our own business. And there's a kind of bourgeois capitalist order which might suit that. But then isn't it funny that as soon as there's an external threat, suddenly you have a great deal of interest in your neighbor's business. So I, 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 I agree. I, basically, I agree with Frank. Uh, I, I think that the language of values itself is not very helpful because they do change so dramatically over time in response to external um, I once did a debate at Cambridge University in which the people on the panel were accusing me of being, um, you know, uh, Eurocentric um, and imposing Western values on the rest of the world. And it was a free speech debate. Free speech was the Western Eurocentric value that I was imposing on the rest of the world. 
and that nobody knew, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and I was really under attack, you know, I was really under the cosh. I was losing the argument badly. And then a whole series of people who were from non-Western countries stood up and said, A, we're not stupid. We understand that when you say Western values, we don't take it literally. We do know what they are, you know, we're not idiots. So it was enjoyable. And secondly, gave passionate defences of me, freedom of speech, and all the Cambridge um, social justice warriors were humiliated, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. But the, but, the reason, but the reason I'm saying that is because I was even conscious, you know, I, of course, you know, it's, it is tricky, because when you say Western values, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, because do we mean British or, you know, and different countries? Or are we talking about universal truths and all this? It's awkward. But I sort of think we also know what we mean. And in that, in that sense, you know, trying to untangle this has actually been quite helpful. But we do actually end up kind of know what we're talking about, I think, just about. Um, right, okay. A few more quick uh, 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 points. So there's a, there's a person there and then there, yeah? Thanks. Isn't the problem is that some of us don't know what we mean? And uh, moving on from that, I uh, once heard Claire Short, about 15 years, give a very interesting talk about how, um, you know, we always hear bad news, and she, country by country, in some very poor parts of the world, was saying about, you know, marvellous improvements in life quality. And a lot of it uh, was connected to women being empowered through education. And she said there's some very nasty people running very nasty governments who through sheer self-interest have had to include women for their own, you know, lining of their pockets in some cases. But, but that, and it was a bizarrely uh, optimistic speech. <laughs> And I don't know in the last 15 years if that's changed or not. But coming to technology, we talk a lot about how the world is influenced by uh, the internet and social media and so on. The thing is that you know, the human brain is very plastic. And we are, um, you know, how much are we being modeled now by binary computers? How much is that actually changing our brains? And, uh, you know, Japan is a very non-binary country. Sorry. Okay, sorry. No, it's just, yeah. I'm sorry to close it down. Right, um, person uh, there. I really agreed with what Frank said about um, teaching in other countries. I teach the history of Western architecture to Chinese students, and they take it on board as part of the history of their discipline. Uh, but interestingly, the authorities that run the course in China call it foreign architecture. <laughs> which I think just shows how uh, these things are treated differently depending upon what section of society you, you're coming from. But my question to the panel was really about individualism. I agree with some of the points made about the relationship between the collective and the individual. But I feel in the current discussion, I rarely hear people talk about the Western tradition to defend it. But I hear a lot of people talking about it in order to set it up as a straw man to attack it. And the thing that they think they're attacking is the individual. They make a very strong connection between the individual and the sense of agency that we had in the 20th century 
uh, and the idea of the Western tradition, and they see it as a problem. How do you tackle that? So, yeah, I, I personally don't know too much about Western values. I've uh, started a journey in uh, reading Aristotle and Plato and various different works of people like these. Um, but I do know quite a bit about uh, Chinese values and Chinese history. And uh, in touching upon um, what a lady over there said um, in the last question around, um, about the influence of um, like media and music on, on people's uh, like state of being, the, the ancient Chinese uh, sages said that uh, they could predict the fall of uh, dynasties uh, by looking at the kind of music that played um, in the, the emperor's <laughs> palaces. And um, that um, if, if, if the music was corrupt and had lots of um, like em embellished desires and so on, then the, it, it would lead to the collapse of, of, of that particular dynasty. Uh, but what usually happened after that is that there'd be people who would have these uh, traditional values, the traditional Chinese values, um, and they'd uh, want to reinstitute them and re-establish um, the, I guess, the next dynasty. Um, and at that point, they'd, um, um, yeah, they, 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 they'd, um, they kind of restore their, their, the real sense of um, of who they were as a people, rather than kind of letting themselves uh, stay in that kind of descended and corrupt state. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that in, in response to that. Okay, thank you. That was interesting. Right, I've got one more. I think it's a question particularly to Professor Ahmed. I'm interested interest in the relationship between values and institutions, partly because you all work at the BBC. Um, and I'm not sure whether you're doing history justice in the sense there are certain points in which there is the passing of the baton on from civilization to civilization in terms of knowledge. And the, that certain times societies catch on fire a bit and that there is an institutional backing and a project that has a certain focus and dedication where lots of people get involved in that over time and there has been a passing on of the baton and it sounds to me a little bit like by relativising it and saying lots, every civilization has contributed to the West that you don't actually recognise the achievement that was made in terms of the advances that were made and it feels like you're distancing yourself a little bit, hedging your bets which I therefore feels like institutions then don't give the backing to the values, which I feel is sort of what's happening at the moment, that institutions like the BBC are backing away from some of those values that have been achieved in uh, Northern Europe and the West. Okay, you've, you've, you've each got, and I'm overrunning anyway, you've each got 90 seconds to give us your final thoughts. So don't try and answer the questions. No insult to the questions in the order in which you spoke, Tim. <clears throat> well, a wet-ass pussy, that's the, um, <laughs> that's what it means to me with the point about music, I, I think it was a very good one. Um, but then I, I'm sure very crude things were sung in the past as well. Um, I, I, I feel like I've been a bit cruel to the Western tradition as well, but I think uh, part of the problem is, is the loss of historical memory so that, such that it only stretches back so far. And my, I will return to my first point, I tried to make in my, in my opening remarks, that it's important to expand the definition, to uh, explore as much of it as possible, for you'll find greater riches and you'll see the connections between things. I really recommend a book by uh, Helena Rosenblatt, which is about the history of the word liberal. Uh, and this is very important because she traces it right back to the Romans. And her point is that liberalism, uh, it wasn't an ideology or anything like that when it began. It was a description of the relationship between the individual and the community. And this point has come up a few times in the questions. It's not just about the individual alone, the autonomy. It is about their relationship to other people and a spirit. 
Um, and the sad thing about liberalism is it, it's lost its, its sense of historical continuity. It's lost its sense of itself such that it has sort of deconstructed itself to becoming this strange mix of, on the one hand, an aggressive individualism, on the other hand, an obsession with group identity um, and identity being rooted in identity to the point that increasingly what defines us as individuals um, is, is not what we think, um, but how we perceive ourselves, uh, that actually our relationship to each other is just the mask and nothing more, that you present yourself as the identity and, and your psychological relationship to that identity, you don't really present yourself as anything more than that. So rediscover the history, rediscover the ideas, and its borders are almost infinite. I, I really like this point about Islam. That's a great example of how traditions interact and how they shape each other. Do not think of it as a simply geographical construct. Uh, it is far more boundless and exciting than that. But at the same time, let's be self-critical of it, and let's always be putting it to the very moral test that Western the, the Western uh, way of life is always saying are so important to it. Uh, thank you very much, Tim. Stephen, your last thoughts, please. Also, to pick up on the question about music and the, as you put it, the ancient Chinese maxim that uh, the music that we have is in some sense a reflection of this, let's say, the underlying state of our cultural soul or something. And I don't think it takes a great leap of imagination, nor does one have to succumb to prudery to think that you know, Cardi B is, uh, is not a good influence. Uh, you know, the, 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 crass, the crass surrender to the worst of the male gaze. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, great, it's a great problem that's betraying uh, the young of our, of, our, of our culture. But I want to oppose that or contrast that with uh, something I saw yesterday. I've only been to the ballet a few times in my life, but I went to the uh, Romeo and Juliet, the Prokofiev now... A Macmillan production now at the Royal, uh, Royal Ballet in which this uh, Japanese ballerina Fumi Kaneko gave just magnificent uh, visual voice, if I can put that, to deep and beautiful and hard tensions and realities in what it means to be human and indeed what it means to be a woman by contrast to what uh, one might get from Cardi B. I suppose I'm not saying simply go to the ballet, though I think you'll all be... Uh, uh, in beautifully enlightened by that performance if you happen to go to that. But rather more fundamentally, we have to drink from the stream ourselves. And when you find one, share it with others. Uh, lovely message. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, Akil. Yeah, I mean, I can have a proper conversation offline if you want, John, at the time. But I mean, actually, in terms of history, history is the key to understanding most things. And I think, actually, we, don't, we, we all pick and choose the bits we want. But actually, there are some phenomenal parts of history, and there's some parts of history which people gloss over because it doesn't fit in with a narrative that they want to have. And I think we have to have a better education. We, when we talked about this lack of knowledge of history or, or in schools, we have a lack of cultural literacy. We have a lack of historical literacy. We have a, lot, we have a real lack of religious literacy. We've talked here about religion in many respects, but actually that's key to understanding a lot of these values. I'm not a big fan of humanist values simply because I think they take themselves from a Christian tradition anyway in that sense. Values are values in many respects. Actually, what you believe, it's whether you, or whether you believe they're a good thing and, actually, and if they are a good thing. So actually this whole thing about going down this line of humanist values, actually that's not what defined us, that's not what defined the West or, not, or has defined Britain or any of those kind of countries. We only have to look at it. If you travel, if you travel, I know the first time I went to Eastern Europe, 
when I came back, I was literally like the Pope kissing the tarmac. I'm <laughs> grateful for the fact that my dad didn't accidentally end up in Eastern Europe. And then you ask me now, do we have the same values? Are they Western values? Because when we look at the, the, the definition of Western values, it was, the, it was those battles that happened which involved lots of people from Eastern Europe against the Ottoman Empire, which we, say, which we define as being key critical moments in defining what is the West and the values that we have. Well, if we don't understand the history, but also look at the present today, we will not understand what those values really mean. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Akil. That's really thought-provoking. Uh, Jody. Well, as one of those Cambridge social justice warriors that Claire likes to argue with, um, I'm naturally contrarian, and I came to this debate today, frankly, feeling rather pessimistic, um, because a lot of the things we're talking about are challenging and difficult. Uh, and then having listened to what has felt at times like a very pessimistic discussion, I've decided that we need to be actually optimistic. I think there's huge reason for optimism. We're quite down on young people, quite down on the education system, but actually uh, young people are not monoliths any more than we are, and there are people engaging in really interesting and engaging discussions who want to do things differently, and I don't think we should be pessimistic, we should be optimistic. And as I was thinking about this, I looked up uh, into the ceiling and I saw these uh, quotes around lending radiance to those that endure in the heat of conflict and actually I think that's what we should be doing rather than wringing our hands and thinking everything is terrible starting to think about what we can do to make things better and encouraging other people to do the same. Mm. <laughs> Thank you very much Jody and Frank. Yeah, uh, unlike uh, Ahmed I'm very delighted that I'm from Eastern Europe <laughs> and, and, and as it happens I think that the most interesting developments in relation to this discussion are taking place in Eastern Europe. I think if you were to uh, ignore what the media says about Hungary and Poland, you'll find that there are the most fascinating debates taking place. Some of them are very messy, because whenever you try to make your way in the world, you know, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to overreact and everything else. But all I know is when you go to Budapest, uh, or I go to parts of Poland, it is intellectually alive, where ordinary people who aren't university professors are asking me questions you know, about you know, what is the nature of, of human life that distinguishes from animal. I mean, the kind of discussions I have in restaurants and bars in Budapest are very, very different than just talking about football and uh, the opposite sex here in England. So there is a very, there is a, a slightly... Uh, He's hanging out with the wrong people in England, yeah. isn't he? Well, well no, I mean, <laughs> as it happens, I, I'm a, a, a football fan. I love football, so there's no problem with that. But there is other things in the world that are really quite important. I don't think it's a question of being pessimistic or optimistic, but realizing that we are at a very important point in, in a, what is a civilizational conflict. I think that the anti-historical trends are ultimately about undermining the civilizational accomplishment of everybody. You know, when you have concepts like cultural appropriation being promoted as values, you could no longer have a situation where Christian Europe borrows Aristotle from the Muslims via the Greek road. I mean, you, that, that couldn't happen because you're taking somebody else's culture around. You know, you couldn't have someone like Ibn Khaldun, you know, sort of influencing some of the discussions that are taking place in Spain in, in the golden era and afterwards. Those things could not have ha happened now because they are my identity's values. So we are in the midst of a very important battle. Uh, it's not a question of being optimistic or pessimistic. It's a question of getting stuck in, learning, educating ourselves, because we need to have 
ideas that are far more nuanced and subtle than is the case at the moment. And if we can do that, then we can have the confidence to listen to each other, because we're not doing that. But we can only listen to each other if we, we know who we are, what the listener is. And at the moment, what we have are very segmented, isolated, fragmented discussions. And that is what we're, uh, you know, we need to kind of tackle. By the way, if you want to understand some of these issues a little bit better, read my book. That is yeah. <laughs> All right, the advert. I was going to do and, that. Right. And, and oh, yeah. can I suggest you visit Budapest to get a bit of the experience? Oh, yeah. right. All right. Um, sorry. Travel advert as well. Right. Very quick announcements. Um, bye. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.